Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Um, welcome. Welcome again. If this is your first time joining us, thanks for being here. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are a new community of faith. Believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. If you're joining us with the first time, uh, we are in the middle of a series called a Subversive Church. Essentially, what we're looking at uh, is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And we're examining how Paul is shaping the mindsets of this new group of Jesus followers, trying to shape them more into Christ-like mindsets. So last week, uh, if you were here, we talked about how we reached the culmination of part one, right? Um, Throughout the first part of the letter, the first four chapters, uh, Paul has been revealing to the Corinthians how they might look a little more like Corinth and a little less like Jesus. Um, How the Corinthians have been using Jesus' language and spiritual language but aren't necessarily demonstrating that they're using Jesus' frameworks, case in point. They're arguing over who's the most spiritual, right? They're arguing over who has grasped the spiritual realities. And Paul was saying, hey, the fact that you're arguing over who's most spiritual demonstrates that you're not the most spiritual. He's trying to sort of subvert them, subvert their assumptions, their frameworks, and get to the bottom of it. And today we enter part two. Basically, as the kids say, Paul's going in, right? Is that what the kids say, Paul's going in? Like he is like drilling home. We're leaving the realm of the theory and we're entering into the realm of practical matters, issues that either Paul's heard about, which is going on in Corinth, or issues that um, he knew, like they wrote to him and asked questions about, and he's writing to them with specific answers to these questions, okay? So we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 5, the entire chapter. Don't worry, it's only 13 verses, and then a little bit of chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, your smartphones, pull those guys out. If not, we're going to put it on the back screen so you can follow along. That's what Paul writes. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even Gentiles don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, that means stepmother, and you're proud Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put, on, put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be an unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedies and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I, that was Paul's attempt at a joke, by the way. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, drunkard, swindler. 
Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And then continuing in verse 12. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Yeah, I'm definitely going to pray before I preach on that. Will you join me, please? Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we come face to face with a text that um, confronts us. A text that is not easy to read. Lord, I, I know and you know that the people in this room are coming from all across the spectrum of what they think about you, what they feel about you. Some call you Lord. Some confess you. Others are sort of, um, maybe at one point they did, but then they sort of found other things and now they're rediscovering or, or re-examining what that means to say you're the Lord. Still others here have no idea who you are. Lord, I pray that as we examine this text together as a community, that you would speak to hearts your incredible message of love, your incredible message of grace. Would you remind us that you are for us and not against us, that you came to give life, to bring life, not death. Speak through me, Lord, and be so glorified. It's in your name we pray, amen. So we're going to talk about sex today. I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> I bet you envy this position right now, huh? Uh, when I think about how to prepare for a message on sex, really, I don't know any other way than to be entirely candid. Like, you have to be completely candid. Um, and, and I think you have to be candid because historically, the church perhaps hasn't been candid in talking about sex. And so I just want, on the outset, to give you my word that I'm going to be uh, maybe uncomfortably candid today. I'm going to be as honest about what I can see and where I can't see, and we're going to sit in the tension and the questions together, okay? That's my promise to you jumping into this. The other thing, anyone ever seen the movie John Q? Remember kind of an old movie? Yeah, Denzel Washington. Such a good movie. Um, basic, basic premise of the movie, uh, Denzel Washington is, is a father. He has a son. Um, his son uh, has a heart condition that they don't know about. Um, his, his heart fails him. He goes to the hospital. He needs a heart transplant. Um, 
John, John Q's insurance won't cover it. So he takes drastic action and he takes the part of the hospital hostage where his son is to basically force the hospital to give him a heart transplant. And there's a super poignant scene where he realizes, John realizes that his own heart is a match for his son. And so he's going to take his life to give his son the heart. It's basically straight up gospel. Um, and he's sitting at the bedside of his son and he starts talking to him. And it's super dramatic. And he's crying. And, he, and he's saying stuff like, um, son, stay away from the bad things. You know, go to the good things. And his son's like asleep in and out of consciousness. And he's saying, take care of your mom. Don't you dare leave her abandoned. Um, when you meet a woman, you treat her like a princess. Like he's, he's, he's offering these ethical exhortions, kind of similar to what we read today. And, and take them and put them on a sheet of paper and they might sound a little confrontational, a little abrasive. But when you see John Q weeping, when you see how dearly he loves his son, and he just wants his son to stay away from the bad things and to discover life that is truly worth living, discover a full life. Um, the, those, those exhortions, those, um, that advice takes on a different tone. At no point in the scene does his son cease to be his son. At no point. The words of John emerge from deep love. And I think that's important because it's the same thing with Paul today. Paul had spent two years maybe, around two years, um, among these Corinthians. And there were no Christians in Corinth before this. So he'd spent two years among these Corinthians, serving them, loving them, shaping them. And then he left to go start new works. And, um, and as he left to go start new works, uh, he's getting reports of how this church, this community who he loves so dearly is, is going astray, going awry, things are creeping in. And so it's important to remember that he's writing back to them from a place of deep, deep love. That you cannot separate the words of Paul from how deeply he loves this community. And I think that's one of the reasons the church might be in the predicament that we're in when we talk about sex, is that it hasn't emerged out of a place of deep love. Perhaps it's emerged out of a place more of fear or of power. As we all know, sex can be a weapon and is used as a weapon all the time. It's inflammatory, it's powerful. But I wanna to start today, before we even jump into this passage, by telling you what Jesus thinks about you today and what Paul thinks about you. And it's really quite simple. Jesus adores you. To the single and the sexually active, he adores you. He delights in you. You're his favorite. To the single and the not sexually active, he adores you, delights in you. You are his. To those who are married and engaging in forms of sexual expression outside of marriage, Jesus adores you. He delights in you. You are his. So I want to start there with specifics to say wherever you are in the spectrum, and we know that sex is an incredibly personal and complicated thing. Wherever you are, even if you don't know where you are, Jesus Christ loves you so deeply and he is so proud of you. And from that standpoint, from the standpoint of that love, 
Similar to John Q, he's saying, now, what if there's a better way? What if, what if there's another way? So that needs to be the preface before we jump into this. And as we jump in, as I sort of trying to think through, how do I even preach this text? What's the best way in? I think it's to sort of take a step back before we enter the text and look at a historical approach. Historically, I think within the church, and if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're like, oh, of course, Christian's talking about sex again. It was the text, you know, like if you'd come last week, you wouldn't, you know, but it's where we are. Um, But notice Paul's talking to those who are called brother and sister, those who call Jesus Lord. So if you're here and you're not, you're like, I don't know who this Jesus guy is, Paul's not talking to you. Like you're off the hook. You just get to listen in and be like, all right, what do Christians think about sex? All right. But historically within the church, at least within the church in America and the West, I think there've been two approaches to the conversation about sex. One, and I'm just gonna use the, the terms, the conservative approach and the progressive approach, okay? First, the conservative approach. I think the tagline simplistically can be this. Sex is a very big deal. The conservative approach says that sex is a very big deal. There's a reverence for sex, both in a healthy and unhealthy way. There's a recognition of the power in the sexual act, that there's potency, that it's really, really powerful agent for both good and harm. And so there's a reverence for sex as it is. But it's also can, can be a reverence in the unhealthy way because when people um, historically haven't abided by the, the conservative sexual ethic, it's, it's sort of held up as like the most important deal, right? Um, and if you don't abide by it, then we don't know what to do with you. You're kind of, there's a lot of shame and you're sort of kicked out. I don't know if you noticed, but when Paul was writing, um, he listed other things than sex going on. He listed the greedy and the drunkards and the idolaters. I was listening to a sermon and a pastor pointed this out and it holds true with me. None of y'all have ever come to me and asked, hey, are my greedy friends welcome here? You know, you've never come and asked, does God love greedy people? Uh, Those aren't the questions. And I think that's interesting that um, it demonstrates how we sort of gravitate to this as like, this is the biggest issue, which for Paul, it's not, it is. It's a matter to be discussed, but it's not the biggest issue. The conservative sexual approach kind of imposed a, a fixed sexual ethic, right? None until marriage, no sex until marriage. But there was very little conversation allowed. And I'm not saying, this is being kind of general. I'm not saying that all churches were like this, but uh, I think generally there was little conversation allowed and usually there was fear attached to it. Like, what if I do step out before marriage? What does that mean? And even uh, there were untrue promises made in some instances. Um, maybe, and I think as I was talking with Anna about this, it might've been more to, to young girls than to young boys. Um, promises, Anna remembers, you know, with the, the purity movement of like, if you just wait until you're married, you're gonna have the most amazing sex of your life. <laughs> And then you get married, these two people are like, what do we do? (laughs) And even, and this goes to show um, how patriarchal our conversations can be. Sex has been, you know, for lack of a better term, a male-dominated sport. Um, So you get into the marriage and then, you know, the best sex of your life and and women are like, my husband doesn't even know what to do, (laughs) right? 
It's like, oh, this is, this is not true. This is not good. And so then they feel lied to, right? They feel like, well, I waited for this and we're just fumbling around. And, um, and so, and there's also within this conservative approach that sex is a very big deal, a little hypocrisy, excuse me, revealed in the conversation. Because while this approach is willing to talk about modesty and purity and the name of how important sex is, it wasn't on the other end. They weren't as willing to be on the front lines about sexual abuse, both in society and within the church. So um, when the Me Too movement um, spawned, sadly, there was an offshoot called Church Too as well, which detailed the ways um, that there was abuse within communities that seem to have a very high ideal of what sex is, which is demonstrated to the world and to ourselves that we are being hypocrites. Because if we're gonna be on the front lines championing that sex is a powerful, amazing thing that shouldn't be trifled with, we should also be on the front lines of society detailing where sexual abuse is happening and working toward its eradication. And definitely when it happens within our own people, our own communities, mourning it, grieving it, not shushing it up. So there's like within this a lot, it's complex. There's a lot going on. But basically the conservative approach is sex is a very big deal. The progressive approach, on the other hand, you might see where I'm going. Sex is not that big a deal, right? If two consenting adults enter into it and it feels right and it brings happiness, it's good right? It must be good. The assumption in that is that Christians are sexually autonomous um, and that sex is a private matter, which I'm going to step lightly here. Basically, Paul would say is not true for Christians, that my sex life is of your concern to a point, but it is of your concern as yours is of mine. And it's kind of premised on a false logic as well, right? It's this idea of like, um, we truly, because we're autonomous, we truly own our own bodies. Like it's my body and I have a high view of the body. Therefore, I can do whatever I want with it. And it's similar to the 60s, right? That uh, culturally, um, the way towards self-actualization, the way you truly discover yourself is through sexual expression and sexual experimentation. So in the name of a high view of the body, I sort of, do whatever I want and do lots of things with it. Which is kind of like, well, you're not dealing honestly with the power of sex. And if, and if we're willing, and maybe there's a part of us that's cynical and hard-hearted, and I definitely think there's some parts of that in my own heart. But if we're willing to really trace it back in our own lives to that first time, that first moment when sexual desire awoke in us, we know that it's not just a physical thing. There's more going on. I can still remember in vivid detail the first pornographic image I saw. I can remember standing in that Borders bookstore. Some of y'all don't even remember Borders bookstores. I remember standing in that magazine aisle. I can see the coffee shop to my right. I can see my brother holding the magazine saying, Russ, look at this. I can see the look on the woman's face. It is imprinted. I can see it. And I dare say, if you're being honest, many of y'all can see the same thing too. I can remember in vivid detail my first time. I, I can remember so many elements of it. 
And I can remember my wedding night with Anna, which was something completely different that I hadn't experienced. I can remember. So I, I say that all to say that if we're being honest with ourselves, the progressive approach fails in a sense or it isn't completely honest because we know in our heart of hearts that sex is more than just physical. There's something deeper. There's more, there's more layers of like what it means to be human uh, happening when we're entering into this. And usually there's extreme pain or extreme heartache that goes along with that. So then the question is, well, might there be another way, right? We talked about the conservative approach, the progressive approach. Might there be another way? <laughs> yes, I think there is. I think Jesus has a third way. Um, which interestingly, as I was thinking, how do I characterize this third way? I think it's a combination of both. Both conservative and progressive have elements that are true in them. Maybe for different reasons than they realize, but elements that are true. And so uh, if the conservatives say sex is a very big deal and the progressives say sex is not that big a deal, I think the third way, the way of Jesus is this. Sex is a very big deal and also ultimately sex is not that big a deal. <laughs> Sex is a really big deal, and ultimately, it's not that big a deal. And I kind of want to go through our text today and to explain what I mean by that, all right? <laughs> I want to start with the end. I want to start with the end of uh, our passage today and sort of work our way back, because that might shed light on what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. So here's what Paul says. Uh, many people know that uh, scholars hold that Paul is quoting back slogans of the Corinthians to them. So either through uh, letters that they've sent or just he knows the Corinthian ethos, uh, he knows that they, these are like slogans that they hold up to. Um, and actually, some, many scholars say that this isn't Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, not to blow your minds or anything, but this is probably a second. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, get this, ready, shocker, is 4 Corinthians. What? We just lost 1 and 3, which, you know... That's what history does to you. So he's quoting back to them their slogans. And this is what they say, right? I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. But the body, however, is not meant for harmful forms of sexual expression, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So that's getting at this idea that Paul's trying to uh, create a sexual ethic for Christians, for the church. And I wanna start with the premise that sex is a really big deal, says Paul, because sex is a powerful agent. The word that we see throughout uh, when it's translated sexual immorality is porneia. It's where we get porn from. And essentially porneia, it's a broad word. It's a catch-all, but basically it's, uh, harmful forms of sexual expression outside the context uh, that sex was designed to fulfill them in. So any, any types of harmful forms of sexual expression outside of the context that takes sex as it is very seriously. And what's going on in Corinth is that the Corinthians are saying that they're free in Christ, that they have this new life in Christ, that they have grace and because they have this grace and this gift of the Holy Spirit within them, what feels good and what feels right must be
be good and right. It must be what God wills. So I have the right to do anything, they say. And Paul says, yes, that's true. You are free in Christ. You can't, to go back to the premise, you can't lose his love. But not everything would be beneficial, right? That's just common sense. Example, um, if we ate McDonald's every day, and I know some of you are thinking, oh, that is not exercising freedom right there. But like, if we ate McDonald's every day, and it might taste good every single day, I have the right to do that, but that wouldn't necessarily be beneficial for me. It might taste good, it might feel good, but there's more going on in my body, which is saying, hey, stop, this is not a good idea. This is not benefiting you. You can't create a sexual ethic, says Paul, based on how it feels. There's more going on than just how it feels. And then he goes on, he says, I have the right to do anything you say, but I'll not be mastered by anything. The interesting word he uses there, exousiazo, exousiazo, uh, it comes from exousia. It means, exousia means authority or power. So exousiazo means to have authority, to have power over. So Paul is saying, I will not give authority over myself to just anyone. Sex, as it's designed, if we're taking it seriously, is in essence you giving yourself to another, giving the authority of yourself to another and asking them, do they like what they see, right? It's kind of both literally and figuratively, you're standing naked and vulnerable before another person. And you're saying, do you love me? Do you like what you see? Do you desire me? Do you delight me? And of course we know that it's not just the physical. You're, you're asking far much deeper, like in who I am. In who I am, do you, do you like me? It's designed for that person to give that authority, that right of yourself to them, for them to name you in a sense, to say, yes, I love you. Yes, I delight in you. Yes, you, your name is the ch my chosen. Your name is my beloved. It, the interesting word that's used when talking about sex is kalao in the Greek, kalao, which means to be joined together. And not joined together in a way of like, we have a bunch of individuals joined together in this room, um, but like to be welded together, to be glued together. So that's why we always hear that phrase, the two will become one flesh. That's, you know, that's, that's what Jesus says is going on in sex, that what was two are being so bonded together that they become one. I don't know if you know this, but there's a hormone called oxytocin, which releases when you orgasm in ridiculous amounts, ridiculous amounts. And it's actually known as like the bonding hormone. Like it creates an emotional bond between the two people. Um, it's the same hormone that's released with mothers and infants when they're bonding to create their bond. So all that to say that there's something going on in our bodies, physiologically, which is so much deeper that we are bonding together um, than just two bodies in the same room doing, doing a thing. Um, and interestingly, when, when Paul says, exousiazo, I will not be mastered by anything, in just one chapter, which we'll hear about next week, he uses the same word, exousiazo, to describe the relationship between husband and wife. 
He said that the marital relationship is one of exousiazo, where both the husband and the wife have given authority to the other to name them, given authority to say, like they're both standing naked and vulnerable before the other saying, what do you, what do you see? Do you, do you like me? Do you love me? Do you accept me? Am I beautiful to you? Or I'm giving my authority to you. So Paul would say, yes, you're free, but don't allow anyone to name you. Don't just allow anyone, make sure. And this is why Christians in marriage for us, um, it's a lifelong commitment. <laughs> That's what we're promising. Because the, the, the commitment and the naming doesn't happen when you're both the passions are high and you're in the room. Yeah, of course I like you right now. The commitment is 15 years from now, 20 years from now, when life happens and stuff changes you and they still come back time and again, naked and vulnerable saying, do you still accept me? Do you still like what you see? And as Christians, we get to practice covenant, which says, yes, I choose you today. I'll choose you tomorrow. I choose you. Yes, you're free, says Paul, but don't, don't allow that freedom to let anyone name you. Make sure they're committed to you. So sex is a big deal. It's powerful. It's a powerful agent to bond people. But also, sex is not that big a deal. <laughs> Ultimately, it's not that big a deal. So they, they quote to him, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both, right? Um, which is kind of like our modern day interpretation would be, hey, you do you, right? Which I don't know what that means. You do you. That's just a tautology. I mean, we're going in circles. <clears throat> the body is meant for sex. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. If you got desires, fulfill them. You got an itch, scratch it. It's gonna be destroyed anyway, right? That's what they're saying. But Paul answers, and look how he answers. This is really interesting. I must be super nervous today because my mouth is very dry as I'm talking. <laughs> I'm gonna come before you after this and be like, guys, do you love me? <laughs> do you choose me? <laughs> this is what he says. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? And just pause right there. Prostitute is the Greek word porne. At that time, it was very casual and very accepted that there were like temple prostitutes, shrine prostitutes everywhere. Um, it would basically be like in our present day, just the idea of casually sleeping around or um, it's not that big a deal. Sort of the same idea. So anything, when he says unite with anything outside of what sex was designed for, which is a committed relationship with your spouse. So it goes, shall I, shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I want to keep that passage up there because this is where the conservative approach fails. They're right. Sex is a really big deal. It's a powerful, powerful force. But within that approach, there's almost like an idolatrous assumption that sex is such a big deal because we're all to be married and we owe it to our future spouses to wait, right? I don't know if, if you grew up in a similar environment, but it was like, like marriage was the highest goal. That was the primary way that you 
um, grow into Christ-likeness, that you become sanctified or whatever. And so there was this assumption within, this, within, the, within the churches and this approach that we're all to be married and we owe our bodies to our future spouse. That's why sex is a big deal. But notice, does Paul mention marriage once in this passage or your future spouse? Even to the married people in this room who are considering, hey, uh, why should I not step out in some way in my marriage? Does Paul mention your spouse, your partner, your covenant partner once when he builds his sexual ethic of why you shouldn't? No, he doesn't. The reason why sex is such a big deal is because our first covenant partner is not even our marriage partner, but the Lord himself. We've already given the authority of our bodies over to Jesus. We've already stood, as many of us who call Jesus Lord, we've already stood, whether we're single or married, before Jesus and said, naked and vulnerable, like, do you love me? Do you accept me? Do you delight in me? And we've heard the word of the Lord, knowing our past, knowing our present, knowing how deep the brokenness goes, say, yes, yes, I do. Right as you are, I accept you. To the single Christian might be thinking, well, it's easy for you to say this, oh, married Christian, because you get to experience that bonding with your wife, right? What I would say, well, you're already bonded as well. You already get to experience it as well with Christ. And moreover, the reason why I say this, the sexual ethic I'm, I'm, I'm talking about has nothing to do with my relationship with Anna. It has everything to do with the fact that my body has already been given authority. I've given my body to the Lord. I am his, independent of my spouse. I am his, I am the Lord's. I have kalaoed, I have been welded together. I have been joined with Jesus. Jesus has named me and he's called me son and daughter. The Christian understanding of sex has nothing to do with whether we're married or not. And we'll find out next week in the next chapter that perhaps marriage might be a deterrent from following Jesus. It has nothing to do with where, whether we're married. We can experience that bonding, that intimacy right now with the Lord. And you might be saying, whether you're single or married, well, I'm not experiencing it. Well, that's a sermon for another day <laughs> about whether we try to experience it on our terms or the Lord's terms. And also that's a, that's a question for the nature of covenant, right? What I was saying earlier, it's not when passions are high and you like really desire that person that you experience it. It's when that per person's at their absolute worst and wondering, do you still choose me? Do you love me? That's when the covenant is really made solid. But this is why Paul can affirm with the progressive that sex isn't that big a deal, but not the way they think with the whole, hey, if you have desires, just gratify them. Sex isn't that big a deal for the Christians because we're already experiencing that intimacy with the Lord. We're already experiencing that intimacy, which is super radical in the first century, guys, because Paul is a Jew and it's contrary to the Jewish way of thinking. The Jewish way of thinking, the first commandment for a Jew is give birth to another Jew. The family was spread through the blood of the parents, right? So you, you better, as a Jewish um, person, get married to another Jew and give birth to a Jew. Like that was how the, the Jewish family spread. 
what the Christians settled on almost immediately. That's not true. You don't give birth to a Christian. You're baptized a Christian. You make a decision to say, I want to make a covenant with Jesus in the waters of baptism, which we're going to celebrate tonight. Uh, so come out to just a little plug. It's awesome. They're such powerful experiences. And in the waters of baptism, that's where we form, that's where we have our, our wedding ceremony, so to speak. So we have the covenant with the Lord and say, I am not my own. I am the Lord's. All of us, whether we're married or single or whatever, all of us do that. So the question is, how can you, single Christian, allow another to name you without the promise of lifelong covenant? You're already Jesus's. And how can you, married Christian, allow another to name you? You're already the Lord's. And you're your spouse's too. So when Paul talks about the unhealthy forms of sexual expression, it's because sex is a really big deal. It's super potent and a powerful force and not to be trifled with. But it's also because sex isn't that big a deal because every Christian already has access to that level of intimacy. Every Christian already is not their own. They've given the authority of their very selves to the Lord and been named by him. And with that um, foundation, maybe that helps shed light on what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. What's going on is, is Paul's responding to an extreme example of a, the alleged freedom of the church. Um, there's a man who's in the community who's in a relationship with his stepmother. Um, most scholars hold that his father probably already died, but he says because of his freedom in Christ that he can do whatever he wants and he can be with, because it feels good, it feels right, he can be with his stepmom. And interestingly, Paul goes, the Gentiles don't even do this. And there was actually some quotes from like Seneca and some of these first century um, Roman you know, leaders saying that this is like a terrible decision, a terrible sexual expression. So it'd be kind of like in our own present day and age, if the Christians were on the front lines of the next sexual revolution, I don't even know what that's gonna be. But like, if we're so far out there, the rest of society is like, whoa, those Christians are weird in like their sexual expression. It'd be sort of like that. And Paul says, and you're proud about it. If you were here last week, he used the same word, fusio, to be puffed up. He says, you're puffed up? about this because it's a higher spirituality. See, what was going on is they thought that their freedom in Christ now made them free to do whatever they want. And they think that the body is meant for sex, so it's not a big deal. But Paul's like, you are free in Christ, but your body has been given to him. It's his, he names you, he fills you. You're kalaod with God. So do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? One part of the body, um, believing in the wrong forms of sexual expression, and not only believing in it, but boasting in it. And not only boasting in it, but boasting in it in the name of Jesus, saying that Jesus sanctions this. That's gonna leaven the entire community and destroy it. Or likewise, one part of the body claiming that level of intimacy with Jesus right now will also leaven the entire batch of dough. And then we get to the part, which is tough for us to hear, especially at Hope Brooklyn, where he says, with such a one like this, don't even eat. Which that's tough, because <laughs> our tagline is, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. 
So we're like, okay, how do we, what's going on here? Are we um, disobeying scripture? I don't think we are, and here's why. When we say wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. There's an implicit pronoun in that phrase. You could substitute the, the the before the table with his. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, no matter where you are, seriously, we mean that. Wherever you are, no matter what you think, no matter what your life looks like, whether you call Jesus Lord or not, wherever you are, there's room at his table. His table, Jesus' table. The issue of what was going on in 1 Corinthians 5 was not that this guy was being sexually expressive as he saw fit. I mean, that's a conversation for another day, but it's a different type of conversation. It's not even that this guy was boasting about it, I think. Maybe it was, but I don't think it was about that he was boasting in it. The issue was that he was boasting about it in the name of Jesus. His boast was that Jesus, because of his freedom in Christ, he was permitted to do whatever he wants. So when that, that, if you put up the, the slide with the his table again, he was redefining what his meant. He was redefining that. And at that point, Paul's like, ah, that's too far. At this point, we need to expel this person for the sake, notice, for the sake that their spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. It was still aimed at redemption. Mistakes, even continuous mistakes, do not disqualify you from the table. Trying to figure out where you are, you're like, I don't think it's a mistake, but I'm trying to figure out where I am. That doesn't disqualify you from the table. When it becomes a disqualification, if you can call it that, or maybe a temporary moratorium, um, hopefully, is when there's a start to become a boast that Jesus sanctions this, that God is for this. And then at that point, with love, we say we can't allow the yeast to work through the whole dough. So for the sake of hopefully you coming back as our brother and our sister, can't eat right now, which is hard to say. It is that love would be so harsh, that love would take such harsh forms. But again, if I want to use the logic earlier that we can't build a sexual ethic off of how it feels, we can't build a communal ethic off of how it feels either. There's more going on beneath the surface than what we feel or what our sensibilities say. So I want to invite the worship team back up. And I just want to conclude with this. Jesus' sexual ethic is that sex is a really big deal. It's powerful. Don't trifle with it. Make sure that there's someone who's committed to you. But you're already experiencing that bonding with the Lord. So it's not that big a deal. (laughs) Ultimately, it's not that big a deal. And since we are experiencing that with the Lord. And I realize that when we talk about sex, guys, I realize it is tremendously complex. It is tremendously complex. There's a lot going on. We're figuring stuff out. Let me end where we began. There is no shame here. Not from me, not from the Lord. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. You are not judged, not at all. You are welcome as you are. But interestingly, 
you're wondering, okay, this might all be true. What's my first step? I wonder if the first step for us that says both as single and married Christians that there's already that level of intimacy with the Lord. I wonder if the first step is to let someone else in. Paul will say elsewhere that not only um, are we bonded to the Lord, but we're bonded to one another. We experience that intimacy with one another too. And perhaps we experience the intimacy of the Lord through one another in the community. So what might it seriously look like? Not, not the way we do community in wider society, which is very individualistic approach. Very much like you fill me. But what might it seriously look like to take a step to let someone else in? And to let them in, not to the good stuff, but to the ugly stuff. To the real ugly stuff. And say, hey, what does Jesus say about me? And then that person, and that might be you, gets to say, Jesus is madly in love with you and adores you and desires you. What might that look like? The gift is the community where we get to experience that bonding together. And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we might say your sexual journey, there's room at his table, always. So what if we at Hope Brooklyn attempted slowly with lots of stumbling and fumbling to live in such a way such that we, we lived out this idea that sex is a really big deal. It's amazing, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But it's also not that big a deal because we're already experiencing it with Christ, that form of intimacy and with one another. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, I have no idea <laughs> what was just said and uh, how it resonated. I pray for each person in this room. That right now what they would feel and experience in their hearts and their minds is the full assurance of your love for them. You're not disappointed in them. You're not ashamed of them. You adore them. Maybe there's a part of their heart which has been stirred and provoked by something that was said today and so they're wondering, it's in the forefront of their minds. Lord, look at this, look what I did. Look what I'm doing. Am I still loved? Do you, I'm standing naked and vulnerable before you. Do you still delight in me? And Jesus, would they hear your words forever and ever say, absolutely. I adore you. I am with you. You are mine. Lord, I'm reminded of the passage where you, where they bring the woman caught in adultery. And they say that we should stone her and you don't answer, you just start drawing in the dirt. And then you raise, you look, you raise your head and you say, well, anyone who's without sin, anyone who's never fallen, let them cast the first stone. 
and they all walk away, the crowd does, until it's just you and this woman. And you look at her and you say, has no one condemned you? No. Nor do I. Nor do I. Now go and sin no more. And that's the other part, Lord, of the invitation. When we know just how deeply we've been accepted by you, when we experience that intimacy with you, we are now invited to live in such a way that says, I don't need those things anymore. I don't need that sexual expression that I thought I did before. I have you and I have you through, through the eyes and the arms of my brothers and sisters here. I can experience that intimacy today. And so Lord, I pray for the courage for the people in this room to take that first step wherever they are. Maybe that first step is just to tell someone, just to let someone else in, whether it's their spouse or a close friend or a significant other, just to let someone in to the, to the ugly stuff. Because that's when the gospel really comes alive. It's not unique that, uh, that we love people. It's unique that we let people into the ugly stuff and we still hear the words of God saying, oh, I adore you. So give people courage to take a step and faith of what you promised them, Jesus, and then meet them there. Only you can do it, Lord. Thank you for this community. Thank you for this family. I love you. I bless you. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.